Amen. Well, welcome to our first fruit celebration for the month of Cheshvan. Tell your neighbor, Cheshvan. Now say Gesundheit. But uh, Cheshvan is a very significant month, and uh, I think there are some very important things we need to understand about the season that we are living, because we're in a war season. And in a war season, you need to know that your God is a warrior, that he has the strength to overcome evil, that he has the strength to judge the enemy, and he has the strength to give you grace to make it through. And really, that's what the month of Cheshvan is all about. So uh, our message this morning is knowing God as our mighty warrior, the revelation of God in the month of Cheshvan, a month to recognize his power and a month to receive his grace. Tell your neighbor, I think I need some more grace. So welcome to our first fruit celebration for the Hebrew month of Cheshvan. Now, biblically, every month is a new prophetic season. And Cheshvan is a very significant month. It's the eighth month of the Hebrew year. The number eight signifies revelation and a new beginning. This is the only month with no Hebrew holidays. And the Jews believe God is saving this month for the Messiah. That when the Messiah comes and God's temple is rebuilt, they believe it will be dedicated in Cheshvan. So Cheshvan is a month for the Messiah. Pray for Jews to come to know their Messiah this month. But it's also a month that reveals two very important things that we need to know about God right now. See, the world has entered into a war season. It is a stormy season. Things seem unstable and uncertain. And in a war season, it's not enough to know Jesus as a good friend and companion. It's not enough to know him as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. In a season like this, God wants you to know him as the mighty warrior. He wants you to know that he stands with you as a victorious warrior in every battle you face. Now in this stormy season, the good news is we're on the winning side. A while back I heard somebody say, I looked at the back of the book and I found out that Jesus wins. Here's some more good news. God has equipped you for battle with spiritual armor, spiritual weapons, and spiritual authority. And God wants to lead you in triumph. But to get there, we must relate to God in a new way. We need to know him as Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of armies. You know, God has many names, and his names reveal his nature. Yahweh Jireh is the Lord who provides. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals. Yahweh Rohi, the Lord our shepherd. But one of the most common names for God in the Bible is Yahweh Sabaoth, and that doesn't mean 
Sabbath, Sabbath literally means Lord of hosts or almighty. In Hebrew, it's literally Yahweh, Tzivayot. Yahweh is the covenant name of God, and Tzivayot means hosts or armies. So he is the Lord of armies. He is the mighty warrior who always triumphs over the enemy. Now, to really know God as mighty warrior, you need to recognize two things about him. First, you need to know that he has the capacity to release judgment. Satan doesn't do anything that catches God off guard. Satan doesn't do anything that God can't overcome. He has the capacity to release judgment whenever he chooses to. That means he has the power to stand against the enemy and overcome all the forces of evil. But in the midst of the battle, you also need to know him as a God of grace. Because, you know, sometimes we need some grace. And both of those aspects of God are demonstrated in the month of Cheshvan. Now, Jews associate two very important things with Cheshvan. First, it's associated with the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh means to forget the pain of the past. This is the month to be restored from the pain that you suffered in the past and enter into a new beginning. Secondly, it's the month of the great flood. See, the flood began in Cheshvan, and so Cheshvan was a month of judgment, but the flood ended the following year in Cheshvan, and God revealed the sign of his covenant faithfulness, the rainbow, so Cheshvan is also a month of God's grace. So let's look, let's look first at Manasseh. Manasseh was the firstborn son of Joseph in Egypt. Now Joseph's life had been filled with pain. His brothers kidnapped him, beat him, sold him into slavery in Egypt. While he was there, he was falsely accused and imprisoned. But God vindicated Joseph. And because he could interpret dreams, Pharaoh gave him a high position and an Egyptian wife. And their first child, they named Manasseh. Manasseh's birth helped Joseph forget all of the pain and injustice he had suffered. Manasseh meant to forget the pain of the past. Now, when Joseph's father Jacob came down to Egypt, he adopted Manasseh and his brother Ephraim as his own and prayed great blessings over them. And God answered Jacob's prayer by showering great blessing on Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh were so greatly blessed that their blessing became a standard by which blessings are measured. You know, when Jewish parents bless their children on Shabbat, they sometimes pray that God would make their daughters like Ruth and like Esther and their sons like Ephraim and Manasseh. When Israel made it into the promised land, the best of the land was given to Manasseh. They got the largest section of the land east of the Jordan. They got the second largest section west of the Jordan. The territory of Manasseh was the richest and most productive part of the promised land. So Manasseh was blessed above all the other tribes. The tribe of Manasseh birthed mighty warriors like Gideon and Jephthah. 
Manasseh was able to stand against its enemies and gain great victories. But for all of their blessings, Manasseh was not loyal to God. When the ten northern tribes rebelled against Judah, Manasseh joined with them. And King Jeroboam set up two golden calves and told the people to worship them instead of going to God's temple in Jerusalem. And so in an act of blatant rebellion, Manasseh turned from the true God and worshiped the golden calves. Now God sent prophet after prophet to warn them. Elijah and Elisha worked great signs and wonders. Jonah and Amos and Hosea all gave warnings. And while there were brief periods of partial repentance, Manasseh repeatedly turned away from God. And eventually, because of their continuing idolatry, God's judgment fell. You know, God is not quick to judge, but he does judge. God let the ten northern tribes be conquered by the Assyrians. The people were taken away as captives. The Assyrians took the leaders, the warriors, the educated, the skilled artisans. All that was left was a scattered remnant. And Manasseh was considered a lost tribe. And for centuries, everyone assumed that Manasseh had been totally destroyed. Manasseh was a symbol of the terrible judgment of God. But Manasseh was also demonstrated the grace of God. Manasseh had sinned and Manasseh was judged, but God had not forgotten Manasseh. And here's an article from the Israel National News dated 6-24-2011. And it's about a remote tribal group in northern India that called themselves the Benai Manash, the sons of Manasseh. And they claimed to be descendants of the tribe of Manasseh that was carried into captivity by the Assyrians 27 centuries ago. And the article says this. Throughout their exile, even after their one copy of the written Torah was lost, the Benai Manash continued to observe Jewish traditions, including Sabbath, keeping kosher, celebrating feasts, remembering the exodus from Egypt. See, in their captivity, Manasseh repented. They turned back to the God of their fathers. And so God preserved them and returned them to the land. Israel's chief rabbinate examined their claims and in 2005 officially recognized the Benai Manash as being descendants of Israel and granted them the right to return to the land. So after a 27th century exile, the tribe of Manasseh is back. That's called the grace of God. Revelation 7 tells us in the last days, the tribe of Manasseh will be fully restored to God and numbered among those who serve Jesus the Messiah. And so the tribe of Manasseh is a picture of judgment, but it's also a picture of grace. And this is a month to know that God judges sin, but he is full of grace for those that return to him. If you look at your life and you see you have drifted away from God, 
God wants you to know there is grace to return this month. Cheshvan is a month of grace. It's a month for a new beginning. So receive grace for a new beginning this month. And God wants you to know that even if you have messed up really badly, your future can still be restored. But Cheshvan is not only the month of Manasseh, it's also the month of the great flood. Genesis 6 through 8 tells us that the flood began in the month of Cheshvan, and the flood ended the following year in the month of Cheshvan. In Cheshvan, Noah brought his sacrifice to the Lord, and the Lord swore never again to destroy the world with a flood. And in Cheshvan, God revealed the sign of his covenant, the rainbow. And since this is the month of the, of the flood, we want to understand some things about it because, again, it shows us some things about God that we need to remember. The account of the flood begins in Genesis chapter 6. It says, when humans increased in number and the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, they married any of them they chose. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And when the sons of God came in to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the mighty men of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become. That every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. And so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, and he walked faithfully with God. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence. I'm going to destroy both them and the earth, so make yourself an ark. And that, so the flood story begins with an account of a demonic invasion of the earth. It says, the sons of God saw the daughters of humans were beautiful. They married any they, that they chose. The word sons of God there in Hebrew is benai Elohim. And that Elohim can mean supernatural beings, demons, gods, or angels. And the ancient Jews believed that the benai Elohim were demonic beings who entered the earth realm to breed with humans. And the offspring of those unions between humans and demons were called Nephilim. That means fallen ones. Genesis 6 says the Nephilim were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. That means you've heard of these guys from other sources. You've heard them talked about because Nephilim were widely known in the ancient world. They were often called demigods. They're in the legends of many nations, the Romans, the Greeks, the India, China. They're all mighty warriors and they're thoroughly evil. Now the result of inbreeding with demons <coughs> is that the human race became thoroughly demonized. Humanity had given itself to the occult and every form of rebellion against God. Genesis 6 says, every inclination of the human heart was only evil 
all the time. And see, demons cannot be redeemed. And a human race that's interbred with demons cannot receive salvation. So judgment had to fall. And the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that brings us to the story of the flood. God instructed Noah to build an ark. And in that ark, God would shelter Noah and his family from the destruction that was coming on the earth. And since the destruction would be so widespread that every member of the demon, demonized human race would be destroyed, God also brought to Noah samples of animals to be sheltered in the ark as well. And then it began to rain. And with the flood, God wiped the slate clean and begins a new humanity with Noah and his family. Now, we all know the story of the flood. We teach our kids about Noah and the ark in Sunday school. And it looks very cute with all the little plastic animals. But many of us in the back of our minds are thinking, could that really have happened? And the traditional interpretation of the flood is hard for a lot of Christians to accept. It's even harder for unbelievers to accept. It goes against everything they've been taught about the history of our planet. It can actually be a stumbling block that makes it hard for some people to come to Jesus. See, a lot of unbelievers reason like this. If I want to receive Jesus, I have to believe the Bible. But Christians tell me that to believe the Bible, I have to believe the whole world was destroyed by a universal flood. And since I don't believe that, I can't receive Jesus. That's called a stumbling block. And that's why it's important to see that the traditional interpretation of Genesis 7 is not the only way to interpret that passage. Now, if you believe in the traditional interpretation of the flood, I don't want to talk you out of it. But if you're among those who have a hard time accepting that interpretation, I want to let you know there are other options. The traditional interpretation is that the flood was universal, that for more than a year, every square inch of planet Earth was covered with water. Now, this is Mount Everest, the tallest mountain on Earth. Its summit is five and a half miles above sea level. So in the traditional interpretation, the flood would have to be deep enough to cover Mount Everest. And that means the whole earth would have been covered with water five and a half miles deep. People say, where would all that water come from? Where did all the water go? Some would respond, but the Bible says all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. So if we want to believe the Bible, don't we have to believe in a universal flood? But let's take a closer look at what the Bible says. Genesis 7, 18 says, The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth. Next verse says, The water prevailed more and more upon the earth. And it sounds like it's saying the water got so deep, it inundated the entire planet. But the word earth there is the Hebrew word Eretz. And it can mean the earth, but it can also mean the land, the region, or the territory. So we could translate this, the water prevailed greatly upon the land. 
But what about the next line? The waters prevailed exceedingly, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. Under the whole heaven makes it sound like a universal flood. But we need to understand some Hebrew figures of speech. See, under the whole heaven can be a figure of speech that just means a very large area. We see the very same phrase in Job 37 where it's descri describing the display of God's power in a thunderstorm. And we're told that the rumble of the thunder goes out under the whole heaven and the lightning flashes to the ends of the earth. Now see, that's not teaching that the sound of that one storm is heard everywhere on earth. It's just saying the sound of that thunder was so loud. It was heard over a very large area. And so we could translate Genesis 7 this way. The waters prevailed exceedingly on the land. All the high hills in a very large area were covered. All flesh in that region died and every man. Now, the, while the flood may not have been universal, it was also not just a little local flood. It wasn't just a river overflowing its banks. It had to be a very large area. Noah could not just travel a few hundred miles and be safe. He had to build an ark. It had to bring total destruction to every area inhabited by the Nephilim. It had to be an unprecedented catastrophe. And it had to bring destruction on such a wide area, it was necessary for Noah to take animals into the ark to repopulate the earth when it was over. Now, God certainly could have flooded the whole earth with water five and a half miles deep. He could have supernaturally created that much water. He could have supernaturally removed it when it was time for the flood to end. But I don't think the words of Genesis 7 demand that level of flooding. So today I would like to share one alternative interpretation of the flood that does not contradict the Bible, but it does not make a stumbling block to unbelievers. And I want to begin with the scientific evidence for the flood. See, while some Christians have doubts about whether the flood actually happened, the surprising thing is many scientists are beginning to believe that there was a great flood. The first argument in favor of the flood comes from anthropologists. Because, see, the biblical account of the flood is not the only flood story. And anthropologists have found that hundreds of cultures all over the world have flood myths. And many of these groups had no contact with each other, but they all tell very similar stories. Their oldest legends all record a terrible flood that destroyed most of the human race. Something must have happened to produce those stories. There must have been a worldwide flood storm. And then the second argument for flood comes from geologists. It came from a discovery they made on the island of Madagascar. And at the southern end of Madagascar, they found rows of enormous wedge-shaped sediment deposits called chevrons. And these chevrons are like sand dunes, but they're huge. Each one covers twice the area of Manhattan Island. They're up to 600 feet high. And they're made not of sand blown in from a nearby beach. They're made of deep ocean sediment from a location two and a half miles 
beneath the surface and hundreds of miles away. And the most peculiar thing is the sediment includes deep ocean fossils, but many of them are fused with the kinds of molten metals typically found at meteor impacts. And the question is, how did these huge mountains of sediment get to the island of Madagascar? But then they made another discovery. They found similar formations of chevrons all around the Indian Ocean. And they were all pointing to the same place, a spot in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And there they discovered an enormous crater on the ocean floor. It's called the Burkle Impact Crater. It's 18 miles in diameter, and it lies two and a half miles beneath the ocean surface. And the sediment had come from that crater. So what caused that huge crater? Well, many scientists now believe a comet struck the Earth about 3000 BC. And the force of the resulting explosion was unimaginable. To get an idea of the size of the explosion, the largest nuclear bomb ever exploded was the Tsar bomb, detonated by the USSR in 1961. Its power was estimated at 50 megatons. But the explosion that created the Burkle Crater was not 50 megatons. It was 200 million megatons. The comet ripped through the atmosphere, plunged into the sea, instantly vaporizing billions of tons of seawater. Superheated steam birthed super hurricanes worldwide. It was a devastating worldwide flood storm. The impact created mega tsunami waves over 600 feet tall. The tsunami waves deposited sediment from the seafloor all around the Indian Ocean. Molten rock rained down as far as 900 miles away. Discover Magazine in 2007 said 5,000 years ago, a three mile wide ball of rock and ice swung around the sun and smashed into the ocean off the coast of Madagascar. The ensuing cataclysm sent a series of 600-foot-high tsunamis crashing against the world's coastline and injecting plumes of superheated water vapor into the atmosphere. Within hours, the infusion of heat and moisture blasted its way into the jet streams and spawned super-hurricanes that pummeled the other side of the planet. The skies would have been darkened with ash for months, and most of the world's population would have perished, making it the single most lethal event in history. And so that's how some scientists think the Great Flood may have happened. It begins with a comet strike that produced worldwide storms and a massive tsunami. Now, it's interesting, Genesis 7 lists two sources for the flood. The floodgates of the sky were opened, the 40-day and 40-night worldwide hurricane, and water bursting forth from the deep, tsunamis blasting out of the ocean depths. And as those tsunami waves travel north, they're channeled between Arabia and India, the water piles up higher and higher, and all of that water only has one place to go, through the Straits of Hormuz and into the Persian Gulf. And as the water surges through the Straits of Hormuz, it's like filling a wading pool with a fire hose. And the Persian Gulf overflows its banks. 
Now, the area just north of the Persian Gulf is the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, and it's the most important place in the ancient world. It was called Mesopotamia. It was called the Fertile Crescent. It was called the Cradle of Civilization. It's a huge basin, 500 miles wide and 1,000 miles long. The empires of Babylon, Assyria, and Persia would all one day be established there. And see, this was the biblical world in the first chapters of Genesis. This is where the Nephilim lived. And it was here that Abraham would have grown up in the city of Ur a thousand years after the flood. Noah probably lived in this area also. This is probably where the ark was built. Now, I used to live in Florida, and so I pay attention when hurricanes come. And it just always breaks my heart to see the damage that a hurricane can do. A hurricane can pass over an area in about an hour or two, and it's just devastated. There's not much left. And if you've ever seen the devastation the hurricane can bring in just a few hours, imagine a super hurricane that rages for 40 days. It will not leave very much behind. All the rivers overflow their banks. Meanwhile, water pouring through the Straits of Hormuz moves up the valley. And the Tigris-Euphrates Valley quickly becomes a vast inland sea, a 1,000 miles long and 500 miles wide. And the waters prevailed greatly on the land. And all the high hills in that very large area were covered. And everything living in that world is destroyed. The greatest catastrophe in human history. But the ark was floating on the surface of the water. And over the course of a year, the ark drifts slowly northward. And at the northern end of the valley are the Armenian highlands, also known as the mountains of Ararat. And when the flood waters finally recede, the ark is left high and dry on the mountains. See, judgment had come, but God had preserved a remnant. The human race had turned from God and interbred with demons. They were in open rebellion against God, and God is a mighty warrior, and he used his power to judge those who stand against him. So Cheshvan is a month of judgment. In Cheshvan, God wants us to know that judgment is real. God does not enjoy judgment. He's always patient, giving us time to repent. And during the years the ark was being prepared, we're told that Noah preached to his generation and urged them to repent. But because God is patient, it's a mistake to think that his judgment will not come. Some people think they can sin all they want and never suffer consequences. But God wants you to know there comes a time for judgment. And judgment came in Sheshvan. But as judgment was about to fall, we're told Noah found grace in God's eyes. So Sheshvan is a month of grace. If we repent and from sin and turn and seek God, there is always grace. And because Noah walked with God, he received grace. You know, the story of Manasseh was judgment and grace. That's also the story of the flood. And just as God gave grace to Manasseh, God gave grace to Noah in the midst of the flood. And even when the world was under judgment, God gave grace 
and grace came in Cheshvan. The storm of God's judgment was raging across the earth. The future of the human race looked like it would be cut off, but God's grace opened a door to a whole new future for Noah. God provided a place of peace and safety for him in the midst of the storm. And Cheshvan is a month of judgment and grace. It's also a month of a new beginning. Cheshvan is the eighth month, and eighth is the number of a new beginning. And the flood not only began in Cheshvan, it ended in Cheshvan. And in Cheshvan, Noah and his family left the ark, and God made a covenant to never again destroy the world with a flood. And he gave the covenant sign of the rainbow. And so the month of Cheshvan is a month to remember the reality of judgment, but it's also a month to turn to God and receive grace. It's a month to be restored to God and go through the door to your future. It's a month to receive God's covenant promise, and God's covenant promise to you says, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. See, as Yahweh Sabaoth, God has the capacity to send judgment. He is the mighty warrior who has all the power he, he needs to overcome every kind of evil. Even when the human race has given itself to demons and violence of every kind fills the land, judgment for God was not hard. See, he is the Lord of armies. And his armies include all the hosts of angels and all the forces of nature. And so I think God would just tell an angel, hey, nudge that comet over there into a new orbit. And suddenly judgment falls on the whole earth. But judgment is never God's first choice. God's first choice is always grace. And you need to know that judgment is real but in the midst of the battle, you need to know that God is a God of grace. So in this month of Cheshvan, even when you see judgment and destruction at work in the world, know that God has grace for those who will turn to him. So turn to him this month. Find a time today to get with God. If there's sins you need to confess, go ahead and confess them and set your heart to seek God. Receive grace for your new beginning this month. Wow. Amen. Thank you, Lord. We praise you as the mighty warrior. And we thank you for your grace. Wow. Wow, wow. Let's stand up. Grace. Let me show you one more thing. This happened this week. I, I, you know, I always send Robert and Pam things and various people things that are more on the intellectual side, but let me show you what happened. Ben, did you get that that I sent you earlier? Uh, this week, there was a discovery also where they discovered that the, uh, uh, that there was more water, a massive ocean discovered beneath the earth's crust, and it contained more water than what was on the surface. Now, that's good news, but it also shows you what the Lord says, how he can open up the deep. Listen, God can go either way. 
He can bring it up from the bottom. He can bring it down from the top. And you better believe this week he's going to bring it down. And I want to encourage you now. Be careful. You're accountable for what you hear. You're accountable for what you say. You're accountable for what you watch. So be careful this week and stay in grace. Now, that's the most important thing because God is a God of war just as much as he is a God of healing. And we are in a war season, so we have to know him for who he is and what he is capable of doing. Lord, we thank you so much for today. We thank you we can gather here, we can worship, we can enjoy you. And Lord, we are thankful for how you are in control of this earth and, Lord, the earth is the Lord's, whether it's deep or whether it's high, and the fullness thereof. And, Lord Sabaoth, one of your meanings that of Lord Sabaoth is, I'm the God of the stars. He can use what is necessary to accomplish his purpose. Father, I send us forth with this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.